Well, following last week's Toby Haydoke's Who's Round, this is the other side of the same coin. Too many of these podcasts have started me by introducing and saying what a lovely day it is. Well, we're in Manchester and it's absolutely heaving it down outside. But it's an appropriate place to meet and I'm going to ask my next victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. My name is Stephen Gallagher. I was the writer on Warrior's Gate and Terminus in two uh, successive seasons of Doctor Who. The first one with Tom Baker and the second one with Peter Davison. Now, Warrior's Gate seems to be one that I've covered a lot with this podcast, and I'm delighted to have done so because it's one of my favourite stories. Although I have to say, when I was a child, it baffled me. Um, Should it have done, and was that the intention? It certainly wasn't the intention, although I do remember one of the the feedback um, remarks that I had from, uh, from... some friend of my agents at the time was uh, what was he smoking when he wrote this and I, you know, let me put on record, I have never smoked (laughs) 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 this this is what the inside of my head looks like all the time Um, I think my memory of Warrior's Gate is that as far as fandom was concerned, insofar as there was a kind of organised Doctor Who fandom at that stage, uh, the fans hated it you know, they didn't take to it at all and it's only in in later years that it was regarded with any kind of um, affection bordering on reverence in some cases which which astonished me a, a canadian fan came up to me at uh, one of the i've only ever been to one doctor who convention and this was in bath quite a few years ago but a canadian fan came up to me there and said uh, i love warriors gate he said to me it's the 2001 of doctor who <laughs> uh, I, I thought well very nice to hear but maybe that's overstating it a little bit <laughs> So what was the idea behind, behind the story then? And what, and what actually is the story for you about? The story, well, when I went to... to I mean, the backstory to the whole thing is that I was doing stuff for Radio 4. I was doing a science fiction play for Saturday Night Theatre, which was produced by Martin Jenkins, thing called yeah. An Alternative to Suicide. Uh, and it starred Michael Jaston, and we were recording that. And... Big science fiction piece, owed an awful lot to um, Alfred Bester, The Star's My Destination, which is my favourite science fiction novel of all time. And Martin, unbeknownst to me, sent the script across to, um, to the Doctor Who office, where it was read by John Nathan Turner and Chris Bidmead, and I got a note from Chris Bidmead saying, come over and meet us. Um, so I went over and I met with Chris and I met with John, and um, out of that came a, a pitch for... Um, a four-parter, which kind of brought together two or three obsessions I was having at the time, plus the pitch that they'd made to me of what they were doing with the season. The principle behind the season was that here we were, kind of, um, we had eSpace and we had um, the, um, the TARDIS trapped in eSpace, and in the course of this season the TARDIS had to be got out of eSpace. And I fastened on the idea of, well, what's between eSpace and ordinary space? There must be a point where you're moving from negative numbers into positive numbers, there must be a kind of tipping point where nothing exists. You know, it's, it's neither one nor the other. So my notion of the void between the two spaces was that, and the idea that there could be various things trapped in the void. And, I mean, we're going back some way now, so you know, forgive me if I can't recreate the original thought process, but I had a co-worker, because I was working at Granada TV at the time, who had been really obs- obsessed and, and surprised by the I Ching. 
Uh, not the I Ching in any kind of deeply studied oriental wisdom manner, but it was something she'd seen in a woman's magazine. And you, you threw three coins, and then you looked up the, um, the corresponding heads and tails configuration, and it told you something about your life. And she said, try this, try this. It, it, it's, a, it's a bit astonishing. So I tried it, and she was right. It was a bit astonishing. In the same way that you'll read your, um, your, um, your horoscope and think, my God, that applies exactly to me. But then if you go and read all the other horoscopes, you'll get exactly the same feeling. <laughs> that applies exactly to me as well. And I realise that there is a certain magic in an oracle, in that if you, if you make it of the right proportion of specific and obscure, then people will find in it something that is entirely relevant to them and entirely meaningful to them. So... Working on that basis, I thought, well, what if we apply that principle to the plot of the story? And the notion was, you know, the, the kind of inciting incident of the whole thing was that the, hide, the, the, the inciting incident of the whole thing was that the TARDIS gets hijacked. And so the questions then arise, well, who could hijack a TARDIS? Why would they hijack a TARDIS? Where would they end up? You'd finish up in a kind of marooned hostage situation. Where could that possibly be? Who would the various personas be? And what would you know, what would their conflicting interests be? So you put all of those together and that's how you generate the story. And certain elements like the, um, the, the white void, you know, which was the, the burnt-in studio, and the, uh, the notion of the, um, the, the leonine appearances of the, um, of, the, of, of the race involved, the time sensitives, all came from different places. The, you know, the, the Gundam warriors came from a different place and the, uh, the roaming through... Um, these black and white ornate gardens came from a different place and most of it came from, uh, from French movies that I was watching at the time you know, the appearance of, um, of the, um, the Tharrells came from uh, La Belle et la Bette Jean Cocteau and the, um, the ornate gardens that was very much last year at Marienbad the, uh, the Alan René thing which is this weird place where you know the sun shines on some people and not on others and it's a hotel with endless corridors and a space that you can't actually relate to the outside world and you know have we in fact died and left the outside world all those kind of things swirled together and out of that came really just a one pager um, where I just broke it down into four separate little episodes and that one pager really was the map for the whole thing and what surprised me was a few years later I went back to it and it's it's actually in the, um, the the city archive in Hull now, which is where my old university was. They've got all my papers, including all the Doctor Who stuff. If anybody ever wants to book an appointment there and and, and consult the uh, the bits and the notes and everything else. And when I saw that one piece of paper, I realised that everything that finally finished up in the show is there on that one page. And everything between there and the uh, and the end was uh, was kind of argument fighting, bookkeeping, and uh, and hassle. Well, and it seems to have been a very hassly uh, production. And I, I, it's interesting. I was wasn't sure how to approach this because um, I'm probably going to put it out in the, at the same time as I put out the podcast with its director. Now I'm no Jeremy Paxman, so instead I, I feel that um, these podcasts should be the interviewees speaking for themselves he said saying stuff for a very long time as he's explaining that but uh, I know that Paul for example 
um, felt that he contributed and then you with the adventure in space and time sent back a riposte which had um, you know all your notes and where it came from do you recall that the production was was very difficult in that regard and that um, getting the script to screen was 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 hard yes it was I mean it was a difficult production I have every respect for Paul um, and you know both of us probably have different memories of the time I can say you know that Aldo and Royce were originally Aldo and Waldo as, as, as created and slightly more comical than they finished up although the characters were, were largely unchanged from the original creation but if you really want to see what I did in the um, in the first drafts of the script that were handed in then you know they're there in whole for anyone to consult and I used them as the basis of the novelization. Now, I will be the first to admit I was hugely inexperienced when I came to Doctor Who. I, my main experience up to that point had been in radio, where everything is told in dialogue, the dialogue is detailed and the dialogue is fairly rich, which is the absolute opposite of what's called for in TV. Also, I was extremely ambitious in what I tried to achieve in Warrior's Gate and not always, you know, my ambition was not always matched by my technical ability as a writer at that time. So, what was handed in and what probably was was placed in front of Paul if he remembers it at all was a heavily overwritten script which needed cutting down now if you compare the broadcast script with the novelization or with the um, with the type scripts you know that, that came out of my typewriter and which now reside in the archive you can more or less trace from one to the other the the immense editing job that needed to be done on my material and I freely admit that now that um, that it had to be cut down and cut down and cut down and reshaped and stuff drops but you know I will say again the you go back to that original proposal and it's all there um, why Paul remembers creating something that was already a creation I don't know I mean it's it's blurring in the mists of time I'm not going to blame him for it I'm not going to be resentful for it I must admit when I wrote the thing in uh, Adventure in Space and Time the the magazine which was they'd sent it to me and said well what do you think of this then and I felt slighted and so the reply that I gave was probably more contentious than it should have been and I regret that now because, you know, life is too short for that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, we're all collaborators on the show. But, you know, as I've said you know, in conversations before, the, the culture in, uh, in British television particularly is to treat the collaboration with the writer as a one-way thing. In other words, you know, you hire the writer, they deliver what they deliver, and then you take it, and everybody is then free to make changes upon it the writer makes no changes on anybody else's work the writer doesn't get to say no don't do it like that do it the way that it was intended it's almost as if that ship has sailed so it's not surprising that when you read interviews with British writers in British TV going back into the old days I remember seeing um, the, um, the Star Cops guy Oh, Chris Boucher. Chris Boucher, yeah, being interviewed over that and, and he was quite resentful of you know, the stuff that was taken away from if you're a British writer in British TV, you get used to having stuff taken away from you or you don't survive. Now, I went over to America in 2007 after having had you know, a fairly substantial career in British TV and discovered a completely different way of doing things, which was genuinely collaborative. Um, I didn't know what collaboration was until I went over there and found that all the writers had producer credits individual writers produced their own episodes within a show they were on set during shooting and if the director needed to make changes they turned around 
and asked the writer if that was okay and what the change might be. And all the writers together participated in the shaping of the show and the chief of them, you know, the show creator or the showrunner, had the last word over all creative elements. That doesn't happen in Britain. What happens in Britain is you, you, know, you deliver your script and then you watch as others do their thing with it. And it's not surprising to me that that does um, create an, a sense of... Um, I always compare it to being you know, like a hamster. A hamster is the perfect solitary pet because when you put two of them together, they'll fight and compete. You know, they're happy on their own. Uh, and writers in Britain are treated that way. You know, you're happy on your own. If you're on a series... I've been on series where I have never met the other writers on that series. I have created a series where I never met any of the writers who wrote on that series. You know, was never, was never, was never even sent their material after a while because I insisted on making comments and giving feedback on it. And that was, that was not for me to do, apparently. But no, if you're, uh, if you're a writer on a British show, this is maybe changing because, you know, you've got Chris Chibnall doing Broadchurch and you've got... Um, you know, you've got people like Toby Whithouse and, um, and Stephen Moffat who I hope are changing the model. And I hope that what they're not doing is just serving the, uh, the model of an enhanced lead writer as opposed to a showrunner. I, I hope this for their sakes. Um, they're changing the model and I think it's becoming different. But certainly in the, um, in the era that I kind of developed as a writer and in the, uh, in the era in which most of my British credits lie then you are very much kind of the outsider in the whole production. And they take what you've done and you run with it. And I've heard producers talking about writers as if they were children. You know, you get the thing off the writer and then you make it right. You know, you get the thing off the writer and then you make it good. You know, you get their contribution and, uh, and that becomes grist to your creative mill. Um, and that, you know, I've since learned is not necessarily the way. But to bring us back to the original point, which is, which is about, you know, what was and wasn't mine in, in Warrior's Gate. Um, have a look at the novelisation. It's, it's kind of all there. Certain lines, of course, you know, have been rewritten between... Uh, because, you know, Paul and Chris sat down at the 11th hour um, with my huge overwritten script and got a producible TV script out of it. Well, of course, uh, Chris Bidmead is that, that, that sort of figure that we don't read. The script editor in television now doesn't do what the script editor did in television uh, then. In fact, the script editor mm. in television then is more like the lead writer mm. now, in a way. So what was your relationship like with, with Chris as a, as a relatively fledgling uh, writer for television yourself? It was terrific. I mean, you know, he was very encouraging. Um, he plucked me out of radio and gave me this fantastic opportunity. Um, I remember he, uh, he had one of the first um, word processors that was, was ever in use in, in TV, which is kind of a blessing and a curse because the great thing about a word processor is you can change things very easily and the worst thing about a word processor is you can change things very easily. <laughs> and, and I know the, um, the Warriors Gate script was, you know, a, it was, I suppose it was a, three, a four-way collaboration. It was me, Chris, Paul and the word processing software. And, uh, and the four of us together um, you know, delivered a, a shootable show. Paul then went on, of course, to have uh, the most you know, terrifically difficult time in the shooting of the show. I understand there was industrial action at the time, which I was not kind of made any party to. But just, I mean, even if there hadn't been any extra difficulties, like a, a particularly complex script to shoot, um, it would have been difficult because, I mean, Doctor Who's were shot in two days. You know, they, they had a week's rehearsal in um, a room somewhere out in Acton where um, there was gaffer tape down on the floor telling you where all the edges of the set were. 
they didn't see the set until the day of shooting and then it was rehearse record rehearse record rehearse record for two solid days and if you didn't get it in the two days or if you were if you didn't get it by six o'clock on the first day an electrician pulled the plug and if you didn't get it all on the second day then you just didn't get it now when we came to do terminus um a year later um it was slightly different because what I didn't realise and what I came to understand was that if you had a film element in your show, which Warriors Gate didn't have, but if you had an element where you were shooting on 16mm film, they would give you an extra day of shooting to do that. So, quite cannily, um, John Nathan Turner thought, we've got all these scenes, separate scenes with Tegan and Turlow, where they're crawling around in air ducts. We'll do that on film and get an extra day to do that, which will take some of the pressure off the, uh, the studio shooting day. Now, I don't know if that was John or, or if it was Mary, the director, um, but one, or, one way or the other, um, they were able to ease the pressure slightly on Terminus. And I came down and all those film sequences were shot at Ealing Studios, which at, at the time the BBC owned. I don't know if they still do or, or if someone else has taken them over now. But it was the old studio tank um, in which... Um, you know, the Bismarck was sunk. <laughs> and um, and the, um, the passageways and everything else were built down into the tank. And I remember the, um, the cameraman. The cameraman, what was the guy's name? It was, it was somebody good, wasn't it? Somebody it was, like yeah. Somebody like or something. No, he's, 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 he's gone on and he's... Remy he, Ad-Farazin, That's was it? it, yeah. yeah he I was, it was one of them. He, I think he'd just been recently promoted from assistant cameraman, and it was one of his, his early jobs. And, um, and of course, he's now gone. He's a, he's a Hollywood, Hollywood DP. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Does, does fantastic work on fantastic films. And I have this little game with... Well, it's, it's not really a game. It's a source of annoyance, really, with my wife. Whenever something comes on TV an actor pops up or a credit pops up and I'll go, been in one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but I always felt that was the, the shame for Terminus, really, is that, because I think film makes stuff look so much better. Maybe it's the way that our eyes are tuned now. But of all the bits to be, you know, get this great film cameraman and this beautiful film stock, mm. it's the stuff that's in the blooming know, tunnels know, underneath. I and know. there's a shot when mm. an Arak walks above them, or is it Valgard? It's one of them. And the Vanier costume looks like it's solid and metal, yeah. and it because that's what film does. Yes. But for the rest of the the rest of the mm. story, they're filmed mm. on videotape and they look a bit plasticky. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the problems they're having now with high definition, because you can get a brilliant film look on high definition, but if you make the absolute most of high def, then it shows up every single flaw. In uh, it shows up every single flaw in reality, let alone you know constructed reality, which is what drama is. So the great thing about film is that it filters a lot of stuff and flattens everything out and makes it places it in another world, and and that's a little bit magical somehow. Which is why so much stuff that's shot in high definition, they run it through a filter and and make it look like film. And okay, thirty-five millimeter film, which is you know really what you want, but. Uh, which we never got in uh, in British TV. I mean, I, wa I watch a lot of uh, vintage TV that uh, that Network DVD put out. Um, They've just had a sale. It's cost me two hundred quid. <laughs> yeah, same here, same here. Well, not quite two hundred quid because I already had most of what I wanted. But uh, but I filled in a few corners. And I, I picked up the Wild Alliance, which was the set and series created by Ian McIntosh, the Sandbaggers guy. Yeah, I absolutely love the Sandbaggers, and I approached it with some trepidation. 
because I thought this is not going to be as good as I remember it because so many things are not as good as you remember them because it's so much tied in with who you were at that time. But the sandbag has absolutely held up. And Wild Alliance, I've got to say, doesn't hold up quite as, uh, as well. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of very aware of this switch between film, studio, which is a convention we accepted at the time and would find really difficult to accept now. Um, but we, we, we just kind of swallowed it. And well, my mum never noticed. I, really? I explained yeah. it to my mum. She, it, she, I think those of us who are attuned mm. to television mm. maybe do. There's the famous Monty Python sketch where Chapman sticks his head out the window and goes, gentlemen, mm. and then back in the studio goes, gentlemen, we mm. appear to be surrounded by film. <laughs> um, but my mum, that, that, to my mum as a layperson, that, she, mm. she didn't notice. Well, the weird thing is, when I, uh, when I saw the... Um, the broadcast version of Quatermass and the Pit when it was uh, when it was issued, what I realised was that they'd shot the outdoor sequences and the fight sequences, any action which needed close editing, they'd shot on 35mm black and white. Which, of course, later, um, all exterior stuff was shot on 16mm. So the difference between studio and, and outdoor would be quite pronounced in terms of grain, in terms of contrast, in terms of everything else. But... I looked at it and I thought, well, that looks fantastic. You know, the, the old stuff is actually looking better than the stuff that was being made 10, 20 years later. Of course, the big, big um, change came when Euston Films and others, I think Play for Today started doing it first on the BBC. Um, Euston Films started shooting on all film. And that was quite, quite a revelation. Um, and I think pacing changed a lot then. And the nature of TV writing also began to change as well. Because prior to that, you'd been writing for 90% studio production, which meant that your writing was 90% theatrical and not classic screenwriting, where it's minimalistic. Whereas after that change from... And, and it, became, you know, it became infradig to do a studio thing. A studio thing was regarded as a lesser form than something that was shot entirely on film. When you started writing for film, then you, you, you approached a different technique. Your scenes could be shorter. You, know, you, you weren't limited on the number of sets and locations, so you didn't have to expand to fill one studio location with dialogue. As you adapt to, um, to writing for film, you realise that your dialogue needs to be terser, you know, your scenes need to be shorter, you make your point and you move on. Whereas what would happen within a studio-based drama is that you would develop lots of stuff within one scene, and it would be led by dialogue. And if you were lucky, then your, um, you know, your, your director would capture it all and you would then move on to the next. So let's go back to Warrior's Gate briefly, because whenever it's talked about, I think, and certainly when the DVD came out, you know, the differences were always more interesting to make documentaries about. But actually, if we look at what's on screen, irrespective of all of that, um, there's lots to talk about that I think is very interesting in terms of it as a product. Mm. For example, I adore the fact that you've made the villains... Not your ranting mm. Doctor Who arch baddies, but a load of really prosaic, banal blokes just trying to do their job. Um, who I don't think there are any anybody like those bunch of villains anywhere else in the Doctor Who canon, and I love them. S I suppose you know if you wanted a precedent for that, you'd have to go back to Dark Star, John Carpenter, where um, your uh, your crew were basically you know, working guys in space, and. I didn't have that much of an experience of, you know, the, the working world at that age. I think, well, 
I was either 23 or 25. It depends who I'm trying to impress with the story when I'm, <laughs> when I'm telling it, and I can never be bothered to do the math. But, um, but I was quite young, and the, the main experience I had of the working world was working for Granada, and then prior to that, uh, working with building contractors on, uh, on various building sites as a, you know, in, in student vacations. But there was a certain kind of relaxed attitude to the, to the workplace that I'd observed in others that, um, that I had yet to acquire myself. Um, but when it actually came down to it, then, then that's what I put into the whole thing. I also drew heavily you know, on, uh, on Dark Star where this great notion of instead of a militaristic, you know, the, the Forbidden Planet kind of crew, the Star Trek kind of crew where everybody was highly disciplined... <laughs> Everybody was kind of a bit unwound and a bit spacey, and you know, there were various characters in the workplace that I found a lot more true to life than uh, than, than the regimented, um, focused, heroic version of uh, of a space crew. So I kind of put that in, and, and everybody, you know, the, Aldo and Waldo, the two guys who, um, who who went around emptying the bins, were actually based on two cleaners at Granada, two women who. Um, would come breezing into the control room in the middle of the most complicated commercial break that you ever had to operate, shouting at the top of the voice, bins, bins, come on, give us your bins. They had no awareness <laughs> of anything else that were going on. And you realise that there was no point saying to them, could you just wait for a moment? Oh, no, we've got to have your bins. <laughs> it was easier just to give them the bins and get them out of there as quickly as possible so you could get on with, you know... <laughs> So you could get on with work that was actually appearing before the eyeballs of about 12 million people at that moment. <laughs> so, so, I mean, they were, they were directly fed into that. And the, uh, the attitude of the, uh, the, the staff, you know, I was surrounded by, by engineers who had worked in Granada for like 20 years or so and had no respect for the management whatsoever. And, and their attitude fed into the, the members of the crew. And then there was the guy who was the head of the whole thing who had these high ideals for what he wanted to achieve but was well aware that his people were going to let him down at every opportunity <laughs> because that's the way the world works I, th I, well, I, I think that this is good to get some context now then um, in terms of because we've alluded to the fact that you were coming from the BBC to the BBC from working at Renada mm. we're currently at the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester and you're from not far from here so, mm. so tell us about Stephen Gallagher uh, the person and the influences that led you to first being at Granada which then led to you being at, at Doctor Who's desk Well I was born in Salford um, I, um, my parents moved to Monton just outside Manchester when I was two years old so I, I grew up there went to Eccles Grammar School um, did well in English and the, the kind of arts oriented subjects less well in maths and the science oriented subjects so that kind of put me on a certain path. I went to Hull University where I read drama and English and had the absolute time of my life. The great thing about the course that they did there was that the English course was heavily academic. Um, it covered Anglo-Saxon literature, it covered medieval literature, which was to feed into Terminus later on. Uh, it covered Renaissance, Restoration, everything up to the present day. The drama course covered a lot of the same ground from a completely different angle. And to a certain extent, never the twain would meet. I remember well doing, um, by coincidence, we were doing The Winter's Tale 
um, in both departments at the same time and I made the mistake of writing what was essentially a drama department essay for the English department examining the winter's tale from the point of view of the fact that well they just moved from one theatre to another this new theatre had a roof on it they could do special effects they could do costumes they had more money to spend on the production and this kind of evidenced itself in the script in certain ways didn't go down well in the English department at all which was entirely approaching it from the point of view of Shakespeare as an omniscient poet I kind of learned my lesson there and then but I think a synthesis of the two viewpoints is really what you need to go forward. When I left um, Hull, um, a place where I had, as I say, a brilliant time, uh, I went down to London looking for work in the film biz. In the last year, I'd, um, I'd, I'd been one of the student directors on the TV audiovisual course and I'd written a half-hour play um, and I'd set it with, it was two tramps after the apocalypse, so it was kind of thieving from waiting for Godot, thieving from science fiction, um, thieving from anything that I could lay my hands on, basically, which is the definition of my entire career. And that I'd really enjoyed doing. And the fact that Mike Bowen, the, um, the ex-BBC guy who was the director of that course, had seen something in me, had encouraged me as well. And I went down to London, and I... I went knocking on people's doors. I, I first went to um, a guy that my dad had set me up with. Um, my dad worked for Shell Chemicals at the time, and he'd made some inquiries in the company. And this, this is how I advise anyone to go about it. Use whatever contacts you've got to find a point of entry. And the point of entry for me was um, a guy who ran the, um, the Shell Film Unit at the time. And he advised me. I, I went to him and I said, look, I'm not asking for a job. I'm just asking for advice. This is what I'm trying to do. Have you any suggestions as to how I should go about it? And that was always my approach when I was looking for work out in the, uh, out in the wide world. Um, I'm not going to ask you for anything that is going to embarrass you or make a problem for you. I'm just asking you for advice. And out of every one of those meetings, I would always get some contact that would kind of throw me on to the next one. So out of this meeting, I got um, a meeting with a guy called Clifford Parrish, who ran a an outfit called Worldwide Pictures and out of that I got another meeting and out of that I got another meeting somewhere along the line I got a meeting with um, some, uh, some producer at Yorkshire TV um, whose name I am now struggling to call back to mind which is uh... but he put me in touch with John Willis who at the time was a documentary producer Current Affairs who had just done a, a thing called Johnny Go Home John Fairley is the guy who's uh, whose name I was unfairly struggling to remember there. But he put me on to John Willis, and John Willis hired me as a researcher to, um, to look into the, um, the situation of Polish immigrants in Britain. This was in 1970... Let's see, 1975, 76? And while I was doing a couple of weeks of, of research for John Willis, I got um, an offer of a job in the central control room at Granada as an assistant transmission controller, which brought with it an ACTT ticket. And um, the advice that I got from everyone around me was take the job with the ticket, you can always come back to this later. So I took the job with the ticket, I became an assistant transmission controller, I came back up to Manchester to work at Granada, stayed there for five years. During that time, laid the foundations of what was then to become a writing career. Not directly through the job, but because in the control room I was 
rubbing shoulders with the actors who came in and were our voiceovers, you know, on air. And we got a project going together. I got a little theatrical project going together with Charles Foster, which was put on at the Olden Playhouse, which garnered me one review, and it's probably the worst review I ever got, and I entirely deserved it, so I hope the script never surfaces. Um, and then I went on to um, another announcer, Chris Kay, um, was friends with various people up at Piccadilly Radio, where he did commercials work, and put us all in touch, and we got together and we did this collaborative enterprise where I wrote a script, and Tony Hawkins produced the script, and Pete Baker engineered the script. Pete Baker was their breakfast DJ at the time, and Tony Hawkins was their commercials producer. And we drew in all the acting talent who were doing voiceovers for radio commercials and you know, TV continuity work, and we made a little show called The Last Rose of Summer, which was a, a six-parter, which fulfilled a need that Piccadilly Radio had at the time, having promised that they would do drama output when they filled out their franchise application. And here was, on its doorstep, very, very cheap, a piece of drama that they could broadcast. So they then went and sold that drama to all the other companies on the IT, on the, sorry, independent radio network that had made the same kind of promise on their franchise applications. So all of a sudden, I was Mr. Independent Radio Drama simply because nobody else was doing it. You know, nobody else was as cheap as I was. I think I got £100 for, uh, for six half-hour scripts. Best money I've ever made for, um, for, for that learning experience. Um, from there, I went on and did a bunch of Saturday night theatres for, um, for Radio 4. Um, I'd, I'd, I wrote a spec and sent it in. And Bernard Krichewski, who was the editor of the slot at the time, invited me down to London, come into Broadcasting House, we'll have a spot of lunch and we'll chat. I mean, that was amazing, because here was I, you know, an uncredited, unknown writer, um, getting um, an invite into the heart of professional writing in Britain um, and being given an opportunity to, um, to do something. You know, they, they bought the play. Um, it was produced. Patrick Mower played the uh, played the lead. It was a thing called the Humane Solution. It was ninety minutes long. It um, it aired on Saturday night and then got a repeat midweek. Uh, the money was pretty good, you know. Even though it was radio, it wasn't as good as TV, but it was better than the the hundred quid I'd had from Piccadilly. And I did um, four or five more of those. Um, the great thing about all that work within radio was that it was teaching me structure. It was teaching me dialogue. And those two elements were then transferable into any other form. So as a result of that, I was able to plan and write a novel. As a result of that, I was able to plan and write for TV. The first kind of big proper novel that I did was a thing called Chimera, which I did in 1979-1980. And I remember I got paid £10,000 for it, for the rights to that. And I immediately quit the job at Granada, you know, in a hugely responsible act. <laughs> Divided the money down the middle, said, OK, there's 5,000 quid to live on, and here's 5,000 quid to get us off to America with. So my wife and I, she jacked in her job at British Home Stores, and we went off to America, and we stayed there till the 5,000 quid ran out, which was several months. And during that time, I researched what I thought was going to be this huge Stephen King-like horror novel. And when I came back, I just couldn't make it work because I'd, I'd bitten off far more than I could chew. 
So a little bit of a fallow period followed after that where my next novel, Follower, didn't sell very well and I lost my publishing contract. And I did um, a little bit of work for the BBC. I did some more radio work. I did a radio adaptation of Chimera, the, uh, the same novel. And I did The Wonderful Visit, an adaptation of an H.G. Wells novel. But basically I was scraping along and, uh, and my wife had gone back to work at that point and I was... I was I was living off her earnings as much as, as anything else. I was not contributing hugely, but I was still working away. And the breakthrough came with a novel called Valley of Lights, which I sold to New English Library in the mid-80s. And the weird thing was that the research for that novel all came out of the stuff that I'd been doing in the States for the novel that had never worked. Hmm. Um, and I'd reached a low point where I was selling short stories to... Um, to magazines, mainly the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, some to Asimov, some to other magazines as well. Um, and I started to write what I thought was going to be a short story, drawing on this research, and it just grew and grew and grew. And I remember thinking, the last thing I need at the moment is another novel. Because I'd written two novels in the meantime, neither of which had sold. One was called October, and the other was called The Boathouse. And they were both sitting on my shelf as completely unsold novels. I got a new agent at that point, which was a kind of invigorating thing, and she looked at all the material I'd got and said, I can take Valley of Lights out there and sell it. So this thing that had started as a short story that had grown into this not particularly long novel, but which had kind of just poured out of the heart, became the source of my career renaissance. And suddenly I was a new English library author, and the books that hadn't sold before, October and the Boathouse, that everyone else had turned down, um, New English Library picked them up and sold them, and sold them really successfully. My thanks to Stephen. Part two of his interview will be in a fortnight's time, or two releases' time, after part two of the Paul Joyce interview. I think it's nice to go back and forth. Uh, Stephen's charity, uh, who he mentions later in the interview, uh, is Dogs for Good. Uh, at the time we did the interview, they were called Dogs for the Disabled, but they have rebranded, and they are Dogs for Good, which is Dogs for Good, all one word, all small case, dogsforgood.org. If you could uh, donate to them, uh, that would be what Stephen wishes for the time that he very kindly and generously gave. Uh, OK, more next time. Please go to my Virgin Giving page if you would like to give me money because I'm running for charity. <laughs> uh, it might be the last thing I ever do. But uh, in the meantime, uh, stay good, stay happy, and uh, tune in to the next one. Ta-ta. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, the 10th Doctor Adventures. What is this place? Calibris, brilliant place. An entirely mechanical planet. Catch, hitch, fuel, fix, buy, pretty much any kind of transportation. In existence. 
This empire's a massive leap in user-friendly tech. Meadow Digital's ahead of the game on the chipsets. Quadruple core nano circuits and a sleek, sexy designer package. Ultra thin. Look. You're talking, but it's all geek to me. Can we go? Yeah, I suppose. Robots running amok. Donna! We're on! Remain where you are! Bex, grab my hand. Go, Donna. One of us needs to. And I just... I can't! Come on, Nigga! Come on! Don't want to dislocate a shoulder for nothing! Do not run. We require test subjects. Ah, there it is! Vagabond's Reach, Tavern of Taverns, most feared social environment in the galaxy. You've never been up Sugar Heart on a Tuesday. You don't know everything about me. Ready? Is this the front door? They don't even have bouncers. Yeah, basically, think of them all as bouncers. Big finish. We love stories. What are you saying? They fizzled in somehow, like the TARDIS? Yeah, transmat from another dimension. The, the, the TARDIS doesn't fizzle. It's more of a 